transmitting from the Mojave Wilderness in Joshua Tree, California. Now is the time for Desert Oracle Radio, the voice of the desert. Night has fallen on the desert. And there's an uneasy feeling here at the station. overwhelming urge to go off to war. To broadcast from my portable transmitter and a solar battery on the dusty road with Shay with the IRA riding alongside Ambrose Beers through the deserts down in Mexico. Decades ago, working the police and politics and military beats at a newspaper down in Oceanside, I had an old, worn copy of Ambrose Beers's Devil's Dictionary. Right there next to the Associated Press style book and the white pages and the Thomas Brothers maps. I would flip through that dictionary looking for something that caught my eye, something relevant to whatever current circumstance, because... Because Ambrose Bierce is a good editor. He teaches you to avoid false language. It was not long after The Old Gringo by Carlos Fuentes was published. That's a sort of fictionalized account of Bierce during his last crusade. Then somebody told me it was much better in Spanish, so I got the original Mexican edition one night in Tijuana at a bookstore. It was a bestseller on both sides of the border, the first novel by a Mexican author to be a U.S. bestseller. That's the truth. So I'd open both copies and compare, read lines out loud, look up the phrases I could not understand, most of them. I still can't speak Spanish. That's atrocious. And ordering food and drink does not count unless you have a hunger or you have a thirst. But Ambrose Beers keeps haunting me. A year or two back, the TV people asked me to drive to West Hollywood and sit in a rich man's house and talk about Ambrose Bierce, about his romantic disappearance. 
So I did, but the TV people were upset. There was a misunderstanding. They'd sent an email and said, do you know about any of these stories? And they listed three stories, two or three stories. I said, I know about Ambrose Bierce, about his disappearance, as much as anybody knows. It's a mystery, after all. The TV man and the email said if I did not like any of those stories, they would offer me something else another time. I said, no, I I like that uh, Ambrose Bierce story. Well, I get there and I talk about Bierce and Pancho Villa and the revolution and an hour or so goes by and that's it. But it's not it because they want me to be an expert on the other things too that I don't know anything about. It was my fault. I misunderstood the assignment. So I had to fake my way through whatever the other things were. I don't remember. Probably about a YouTuber disappearing while trying to find a secret Bitcoin mine. Uh, They did not ask me back again. I broke some rule. I was confused by the electronic communications. And then William Shatner went to space and had his psyche completely shattered, which greatly annoyed the nude-eyed Amazon guy who was trying to spray champagne on his underlings. And William Shatner doesn't do that TV program anymore either, although the reruns will air until the last boomer dies on whatever cable channel. I hear from people when they come across it in motels sometimes, where they've still got cable TV. It's all right. It worked out fine. And a person should be careful about going on television. The problem was the pandemic, the lockdown. I had not been anywhere in a while, so going to Los Angeles for an overnight seemed like a good idea. Especially if the people from William Shatner's mystery show were paying for the travel. But I still think a lot about Ambrose Bierce. The haunting grows more urgent. This is Desert Oracle Radio with soundscapes by Red Blue Black Silver.
You know, I write for Willhurst Magazine, the Alta Journal, from time to time, and I wonder what kind of war they could send me to cover. One last romantic mission before vanishing forever. No return address. Who doesn't dream of vanishing forever in this virtual reality prison world? There's this terrific book about Leonard Cohen serving as a troubadour, a sort of bugle corps man, a freelance musical soldier, and the Yom Kippur War. The story is incredible, and until recently it was barely known. It was a footnote in the long, interesting, artistic life of Leonard Cohen. So there's Leonard Cohen at age 38, burnt out, tired of making records, bored of trying to be a poet, unsure of whether or not it matters. Tired of his easy and decadent life. Which back then was mostly spent on the island of Hydra. With his small family. But his son, his young son was small anyway. The rest of them were normal sized. The adults. And so in the midst of a spiritual crisis, a psychic breakdown, he hops a plane to Tel Aviv, did not bring anything, not even a guitar. Guitars are tyranny when you're expected to make product with them, generate content all the time. They should then be abandoned or stomped into splinters. Well, I won't give away the book because it's worth reading, but he went to war. Leonard Cohen went to the war. No assignment, no commission, but sometimes God gives you a mission if you show up in the right place. The book is called Who by Fire? Leonard Cohen and the Sinai by Matty Friedman. Those are dangerous books to read. That's a dangerous sort of book to get into when you're restless. They are loaded guns. This happens to everybody in different phases of one's life. But as the years go on, I 
become reluctantly aware that the great crisis requiring my specific genius may not be forthcoming. The great movement, the grand human adventure may not be summoning me to battle in the time remaining. gladly join a lost cause, a group of fanatics, a guerrilla war, anything without a human resources department, really. Without items to complete on DocuSign. Without a requirement to log in to the financial institution website where there are always cheerful photographs of the people that banks redline out of all the loans. Government leaguers, the truth seekers, the ragged armies of the night. I sympathize and empathize with all the outlaws trying to make a noise in this blanked out world. Liberate the house elves, you know, shoot down the aliens, lock up the CEOs, levitate the Pentagon. Under cover of darkness. of the Arabian Desert. Here the soil is so rich that even the laziest farmer can make a good living with his crude old plow. Damascus is the oldest inhabited city on earth. We can trace its history back 4,500 years, but it must be much older than that. For the Orientals believe that this is where the Garden of Eden used to be. And if Adam and Eve used the plow, it must have looked something like this. History tells us that when Mohammed got his first and only glimpse of Damascus from a hilltop, he exclaimed, Man can have but one paradise. Mine is fixed above. And so he passed on. It was on this spot that Mohammed made his great renunciation. However, as we are not prophets, we decided to take a chance. And so we went down into Damascus. 
where we found a picturesque jumble of modern houses, old mosques, minarets, and still older ruins that bear silent witness to the many fierce battles that were fought for it down through the centuries. The tower in the distance is the Minaret of the Bride, built 1,200 years ago. These ruins surround the tomb of Salai, the great warrior who fought the Crusaders and stopped Richard the Lionheart. Between ancient Roman columns, we get glimpses of the Minaret of Isa, the oldest and tallest tower in Syria. The Muslims believe that on Judgment Day, Christ will appear on this minaret. The courtyard of the Omayyadi, the oldest and most imposing mosque in Damascus. Partially destroyed by fire, it is now being rebuilt. Here once stood a pagan temple, which was converted into a Byzantine basilica dedicated to St. John the Baptist 1,600 years ago. 400 years later, this basilica was made over into a Mohammedan mosque. Yet the Muslims still revere the memory of St. John, whose head, enclosed in a box of gold, is said to be buried under the mosque. We see the famous Street Called Straight, known to Abraham and King David, and where Ananias went to the house of Judas to inquire for Saul of Tarsus. Shops called bazaars line this busy street, which follows a straight line right across the city from east to west. Sheep raising is profitable here, thanks to the rich pasture land around the back. And wool is an important item of commerce. Caravans of camels bring the wool to the marketplace or deliver it to distant points. A general laziness pervades the whole place. Camels move about slowly, majestically, and some of them, realizing that they have reached their journey's end, squat down to rest without waiting for an invitation. Now, could any woman resist the temptation of buying this beautiful glove box? I ask you. The string of the bow is wound around the shaft of the lathe and makes a turn. The accuracy of the final result is astonishing. And this is how the grooves are cut into the metal with a graving tool. I testify there is no god but God, a typical Arabian coffee pot. And a brass bowl with Arabic inscriptions taken from the Koran. That is like no other antiquity, built by the Turkish Sultan Selim for the weary pilgrims returning from Mecca. The Muezzin chants his call to prayer. Come to Mohammed is the apostle of God. And as the Muslims reverently kneel in accordance with their faith, we silently leave the magic city immortal. Identity, the review is a form of welcome by Ambrose Pierce. 
One summer night, a man stood on a low hill overlooking a wide expanse of forest and field. By the full moon hanging low in the west, he knew what he might not have known otherwise. That it was near the hour of dawn. A light mist lay along the earth, partly veiling the lower features of the landscape. But above it, the taller trees showed in well-defined masses against a clear sky. Two or three farmhouses were visible through the haze, but in none of them naturally was a light. Nowhere indeed was any sign or suggestion of life except the barking of a distant dog, which, repeated with mechanical iteration, served rather to accentuate than dispel the loneliness of the scene. The man looked curiously about him on all sides as one who among familiar surroundings is unable to determine his exact place and part in the scheme of things. It is so, perhaps, that we shall act when, risen from the dead, we await the call to judgment. A hundred yards away was a straight road showing white in the moonlight, endeavoring to orient himself as a surveyor or navigator might say. The man moved his eyes slowly along its visible length and at a distance of a quarter mile to the south of his station saw, dim and gray in the haze, a group of horsemen riding to the north. Behind them were men afoot marching in column with dimly gleaming rifles aslant above their shoulders. They moved slowly and in silence. Another group of horsemen, another regiment of infantry, another and another, all in unceasing motion toward the man's point of view, past it and beyond. A battery of artillery followed, the cannoneers riding with folded arms on limber and caisson, and still the interminable procession came out of the obscurity to south and passed into the obscurity to north with never a sound of voice, nor hoof, nor wheel. The man could not rightly understand. He thought himself deaf. He said so and heard his own voice, although it had an unfamiliar quality that almost alarmed him. It disappointed his ear's expectancy in the matter of timber and resonance. But he was not deaf, and that for the moment sufficed. Then he remembered that there are natural phenomena to which someone has given the name acoustic shadows. If you stand in an acoustic shadow, there is one direction from which you will hear nothing. At the Battle of Gaines Mill, one of the fiercest conflicts of the Civil War, with a hundred guns in play, spectators a mile and a half away on the opposite side of the Chickahominy Valley heard nothing of what they clearly saw. The bombardment of Port Royal heard and felt at St. Augustine, 150 miles to the south, was inaudible two miles to the north in a still atmosphere. A few days before the surrender at Appomattox, a thunderous engagement between the commands of Sheridan and Pickett was unknown to the latter commander, a mile in the rear of his own line. 
These instances were not known to the man of whom we write, but less striking ones of the same character had not escaped his observation. He was profoundly disquieted, but for another reason than the uncanny silence of that moonlight march. Good Lord, he said to himself. And again, it was as if another had spoken his thought. If those people are what I take them to be, we have lost the battle and they are moving on Nashville. Then came a thought of self and apprehension, a strong sense of personal peril, such as in another we call fear. He stepped quickly into the shadow of a tree, and still the silent battalions moved slowly forward in the haze. The chill of a sudden breeze upon the back of his neck drew his attention to the quarter whence it came, and turning to the east he saw a faint gray light along the horizon, the first sign of returning day. This increased his apprehension. I must get away from here, he thought, or I shall be discovered and taken. He moved out of the shadow, walking rapidly toward the graying east, and from the safer seclusion of a clump of cedars, he looked back. The entire column had passed out of sight. The straight white road lay bare and desolate in the moonlight. Puzzled before, he was now inexpressibly astonished. So swift a passing of so slow an army... He could not comprehend it. Minute after minute passed unnoted. He had lost his sense of time. He sought with a terrible earnestness a solution to the mystery, but sought in vain. When at last he roused himself from his abstraction, the sun's rim was visible above the hills. But in the new conditions, he found no other light than that of day. His understanding was involved as darkly in doubt as before. On every side lay cultivated fields showing no sign of war and war's ravages. From the chimneys of the farmhouses, thin ascensions of blue smoke signaled preparations for a day's peaceful toil. Having stilled its immorial allocution to the moon, the watchdog was assisting a man who, prefixing a team of mules to the plow, was flatting and sharping contentedly at his task. The hero of this tale stared stupidly at the pastoral picture as if he had never seen such a thing in all his life. Then he put his hand to his head, passed it through his hair, and withdrawing it, attentively considered the palm. A singular thing to do. Apparently reassured by this act, he walked confidently toward the road.